and turn to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. This afternoon we want to look at Hebrews chapter 8 and our title of our study is Christ is Better. Christ is Better. As we come to chapter 8 of the book of Hebrews, we're reminded of a key word in this book, and that key word is the word better. Better. I don't know if you remember how, uh, but early on in our study, uh, we noted that this word, it's translated better, is used 19 times in the New Testament, and in all uh, but six of these references are here in the book of Hebrews. Uh, Here in chapter 8, we once again are confronted with this idea that Jesus Christ, our great high priest, is better. Christ is better than anything you can think of in this world, uh, that that anything this world has to offer. You think, well, man, that was a great lunch we had today, wasn't it? Uh, That was great dessert. Well, there were some really good desserts today. Uh, There was some great things that happened. There's some beautiful things that happened. Uh, You know, those places where you take a walk and there's nice green grass and there's a, you know, little rolling hills and maybe some flowers planted and some, and then there's a little flag that sticks up. You know, there's some beautiful places there. Uh, right now, there's a golf tournament going on at Pebble Beach, and uh, it's amazing what you see uh, there. And I don't know how they can even play golf in those places because the ocean is, waves are coming up and hitting against the side there. And there's some beautiful places uh, uh, on the internet. You uh, People like to put on pictures of some beautiful places in the world, uh, beautiful waterfalls, beautiful uh, scenery. And there's a lot of things in this world that are really, really, really great. Now I sound like Trump. Uh, They're really, really, really great. But uh, uh, they uh, are beautiful. Uh, There's some nice things. There's some nice people that we know. Uh, There's some uh, uh, things that are just uh, amazing. But you can't find anything that's better than Christ. Nothing is better than Christ. Anything you can think of. Uh, you, uh, you probably thought about all kinds of other things that, than what I've thought about. But this chapter is a climax of what the writer has been building throughout the previous tra- chapters. In fact, this is kind of a high note that began back in chapter 7 and in verse 25. Where it says, Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for him. Notice the word uttermost. Uh, that's, that's way out there. Uh, look at the word ever liveth. Not just sometimes liveth, but ever liveth. Uh, this is really a key uh, verse in this section of the book. You see, the emphasis here is upon the fact that the Lord Jesus is living. He's not dead. Uh, He's not still on the cross. He's not lying in a grave. He arose from the dead, and the emphasis is upon our living Christ. And then you notice verse 26 of chapter chapter 7. For such an high priest became us who is holy. Uh, Such a high priest that became us, he's what we need. (coughs) Who is holy in relationship to God. He's harmless. He never does anything to harm. He never uh, moves by anger. 
He's undefiled. He's free from any moral impurity. He's separate from sinners in his life and character. And although he's right down here among us and wants to, uh, us to come to him, and then he's made higher than the heavens, he is in the presence of God. Look at verse 27. Verse 27, there's nothing of greater value than he who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once when he offered up himself. Nothing greater. Verse 28 says, For the law maketh men high priests which have infirmity, but the word of the oath which was since the law maketh the Son who is con- consecrated forevermore. You do not need to place your confidence in any, uh, just a mere man when you can place your confidence in Jesus. You place your confidence in the God-man. And because he is man, he can sympathize with you. He's able to meet your needs. He's a royal priest. He's a righteous priest. He's a peace-promoting uh, priest. He's a personal priest. Uh, he's uh, for you personally. Now, he didn't inherit the office. That is, he didn't come in the line of Aaron. But he's an eternal priest. And by the way, don't ever deny the deity of Jesus Christ. The Bible is God's word, and when you're tempted to believe the false ideas that are being promoted today by movie makers, especially, I think, they, they like to take all kinds of liberties with the word of God. Remember, this is the book, and it's truth. The word and the devil... The world and the devil are going to try and get you to believe a lie. They're going to pervert. They're going to, they're going to uh, twist. And they're going to try to get you to believe a lie. And they're very subtle in doing it. But don't fall for it. Prove all things. Now, I want you to notice two areas in which we're taught that Christ is better. There's a better tabernacle. In chapter 8, verses 1 through 5, We see now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices, wherefore it is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law, who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. For see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern shown Uh, showed to thee in the mount. Now I want you to notice that first verse there. It says, this is the sum. This is the sum. The the writer is not actually summing up at this point, although that thought could be included, but he's doing more than that. The writer is saying, in consideration of these things which were spoken, this is the main point. We have a high priest who sat down in the heavens on the right hand of the majesty. He is saying that Christ is a priest of a better tabernacle. Christ did something which no priest in the Old Testament ever did. And I want you to notice four things about Christ and this better tabernacle. Number one, he is a priest. Now never lose sight of that fact. 
He is a priest. We have such an high priest. The words such an high priest refer to what the writer has just revealed about him. Uh, he is a holy, harmless, unspotted, separated, higher than the heavens high priest. He's been un- uninterrupted, flawless, perfect priesthood. His words, uh, his use of the words we have indicate that this is the believer's present possession. If you belong to him this afternoon, this priesthood is your possession right now. He is a priest. Secondly, he's an enthroned priest. (coughs) You notice here, he is one who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heavens, the highest position possible. The matter of the throne emphasizes the fact that the ideal priest is one who is also a king. Uh, We mentioned this before, but I remind you that this was not true of any of the priests of Judah or Israel. Few of them were prophets, but none of them uh, held the office of priest. And then when some intruded into the priesthood, serious trouble came about. That is the kings. uh, They uh, started to act like priests and then they got in trouble. In chapter 7, we saw that Melchizedek was both a priest and a king, and our Lord was made high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And the words, right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, speak of three things. A place of position and power, a place of equality with the Father, and a place of affection. He is the beloved Son of the Heavenly Father. The word words, is set. <coughs> Literally sat down. In fact, the same word is translated that way in chapter 1 and verse 3. It highlights two very important facts. Number one, his work is a finished work. There is nothing you or I or anyone else can add to it. His work is a finished work. Number two, his work is an accepted work. The Father is pleased with it has given him the honored position of his, at his right hand. And all we need to do is turn to Jesus Christ and trust him as our Savior. He sat down because he had finished our redemption and he asked that we accept it. So he's a priest. He's an enthroned priest. And then thirdly, he's a ministering priest. A ministering priest. It says here, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. The word minister is really a combination word in the Greek, which means belonging to the people and the word work. Belonging to the people and work. It's a work belonging to the people. And it was used of those who held public office in ancient Greek. The word sanctuary simply means holy places. Now, often in more formal and liturgical churches, they'll use the word sanctuary for this large room in which we meet for preaching and for worship. Now, we probably refer this more to an auditorium. There's some of you might say, well, it's over there in the sanctuary. Well, I don't use the word sanctuary for this. I use auditorium. It's a gathering place. And by the way, we should be respectful of this place where we, where, where we meet. Uh, it's... Um, where we meet to sing and hear the preaching. There's really nothing holy or special about this room. It's just uh, uh, wood and some plaster and some paint. You know, it's a, it's a place where we worship and we preach God's word. Don't get me wrong, it's not, uh, it's not a gymnasium. 
I know that there are some uh, churches they have to they use a gymnasium for physical exercise and then then they put all the chairs down and they make it into an auditorium they they use it for that way well um, the key truth for us is that we have an indwelling spirit of God our bodies are the tabernacle or the sanctuary and we need to keep our bodies holy and pure for the Lord. But here in this passage, sanctuary has a reference to the holy place or the holy of holies in the tabernacle. And our high priest is not just a minister of the sanctuary, but also of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, it says. Now, it's called the true tabernacle, not in contrast to something false, but to indicate that there is not a, it's not merely a copy. It's the genuine article. In fact, the word true is literally the word genuine. In the language of a jeweler, a jeweler, it's a, like a real diamond, not a glass imitation. In other words, it's not a shadow, but it's reality. It's the substance. It's a tabernacle made not with man's hands, as was the tabernacle in the wilderness, but one that made by God himself. Aaron and his successors ministered in a sanctuary constructed by human hands. And our high priest ministers in a superior sanctuary fashioned by God himself. Now, what did he minister? Well, he offered gifts and sacrifices. See that in verse 3, he fulfilled this by offering himself at Calvary. If you hold your place there and just turn the page over to chapter 9 and verse 13. It says, for if the blood of bulls and goats and ashes and heifer sprinkled uh, the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Now, since this has already been settled at the cross... It has no relation whatever to his present ministry. Remember, he is seated at the Father's right hand. It's not a position of one, uh, uh, not the position of one who offers, but the one whose work, whose offering has already been accomplished and accepted. So he's a priest. Uh, he's an enthroned priest. He's a ministering priest. And then, fourthly, he's a heavenly priest. Verse 4 makes it plain that he could not minister as a priest on earth. No priest could serve on earth except after the order of Aaron of the tribe of Levi. And yet Christ was of the tribe of Judah and his descendants being barred from the earthly priesthood. If you go back to chapter 7, verse 14, it says, For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of the tribe of Moses, spake nothing concerning priesthood. And then also the earthly priest would have to offer gifts according to the law. He came to free us from the law, and we're no longer bound by it. Galatians 3.24 and 25, Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster, to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith, and that after faith, that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. And so our high priest ministers in a heavenly tabernacle. Now, if you look at the earthly tabernacle, it was really just a mere copy of the one in heaven. It was an example. It was a shadow of reality. Look at verse 5. Again, in verse 5, it says, 
who serve under the example and the shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. For see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed, showed to thee in that mount. Now, when the earthly copy was made, God commanded Moses to make exactly according to the heavenly original. He says he was admonished by God. God gave him a pattern of the original in heaven, the true and better tabernacle. And the tabernacle in its beautiful simplicity furnishes for us a type of Jesus Christ, a picture of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity to study the tabernacle in the Old Testament. I'm sure that some of you have. But let me remind you of this wonderful type of Christ. We won't take time to get real detailed about this uh, today, but the tabernacle was called a t- was a tent, uh, the sides of which were upright boards covered with both sides on go- with gold. It measured thirty cubits long, ten cubits wide, and was divided into two compartments. First compartment was called the holy place. It was about uh, there were about three articles of furniture there: the golden lampstand, the golden table of showbread, and the golden altar where incense was offered. No sacrifice other than incense. The lampstand was a type of Christ, as a type of Christ, and that is the light of the Word. The table of showbread symbolized him as the bread of life. The golden altar at which the high priest offered a prayer spoke of Christ, our great intercessor. And then on the great day of atonement, the high priest passed through the separating veil to the inner compartment, the Holy of Holies, in which there were two articles of furniture. Number one, the Ark of the Covenant was a box made of wood covered with gold inside and outside, in which the Ten Commandments were written on tables of stone, a pot of manna, and Aaron's rod that budded. And then the Ten Commandments speak of the fact that the Lord Jesus came to fulfill the law. And he is the only one who ever kept all of it in all of its detail. The pot of manna speaks of the fact that he is the bread of life, even today. And Aaron's rod, a rod that budded, speaks of Christ's resurrection. So there's the Ark of the Covenant. Secondly, the Ark of the Covenant was covered with a highly ornamental top called the mercy seat, and crowning it were two cherubim of beaten gold. Once a year, the high priest placed blood on the mercy seat, and that was God's dwelling place, that is, the place where God met with the children of Israel. Now, around the tabernacle was a court, surrounded by a fine uh, by linen fence, 100 cubits long and 50 cubits wide. In that outer court were two articles of furniture, The first was the brazen altar where all the sacrifices were made and the sin question was settled there. But since saints still sin, there was a labor where the priests could wash, signifying the cleansing from sin. Now the holy place is where the priests served and where they worshiped. We worship God when we pray. We worship God when we feed upon his word. We worship God when we walk in the light of his presence. We worship God when we are obedient to him. Now, no one but the high priest, and he only once a year, entered into the next compartment, the Holy of Holies. But when the Lord Jesus died, the separating veil that was torn in two, signifying that he forever opened the way into the Holy of Holies and the presence of God. Now, we might say that the Lord Jesus Christ took the tabernacle, which was horizontal, 
and made it perpendicular to the earth so that the Holy of Holies is now in heaven because that's where he is. And if you'd been in the wilderness with Israel, you would have seen the tabernacle in the heart of the encampment with the tents of the tribes surrounding it. You would have seen the pillar of the cloud over the tabernacle by day and the pillar of fire by night. Uh, you would have seen the priests busily running around, carrying on their ministry of offering sacrifices, observing all the ritual which God had commanded. Now all of that was a shadow of reality. The reality itself is in heaven. And today Jesus is there in the heavenly tabernacle functioning in behalf of you and me. And my question to you this afternoon is, is Christ real to you right now? If you still like to run around in a ritual and just see who's coming to church once a week as kind of a duty or an obligation that will make you think, you, make you think you're spiritual, that's not reality. You're just playing at religion. It's having no effect on your life the rest of the week. Listen, the Lord Jesus ministers in a better tabernacle, the genuine tabernacle in heaven. He, was made, he has made the throne of God a throne of grace. And we have been told to come there with great confidence and assurance that he is there. And you and I need to have the reality of Jesus Christ in our lives every day. Christ is better because he's a high priest in a better tabernacle. Now, there was two things, a better tabernacle. Secondly, a better covenant. A better covenant. And here we see a replacement of shadows with reality. Again, in verse 1 through 5, we see the replacement of shadows with reality that casts the shadow. Remember from Hebrews 8, 5, that the priests serve a copy or a shadow of heavenly things. The tabernacle, the temple were a shadow. The official priesthood was a shadow. The animal sacrifices were a shadow. The feasts and the dietary laws were a shadow. And when Christ came, the shadows began to fall away because Christ himself is reality. He is our temple, our tabernacle, our focus, and our place of worship. He is our high priest, our mediator, and our intercessor. He is our atoning sacrifice. He is our Passover feast and our spiritual food. He is our purity and our holiness that sets us off from other people. And we see that there's a reason why worship and focus of the New Testament is so radically spiritual rather than ritualistic or traditionalistic. The reason is that Christian Christianity is a missionary faith. That is, the message of the New Testament is meant to be preached to all peoples. The radical worship of the New Testament is meant to be personified to all cultures. Now that was impossible in the Old Testament. The tabernacle, the priests, the sacrifices, the feasts, the dietary laws could not be transferred to other peoples or cultures. The Old Testament was a come and see religion. Christianity is a go and tell religion. See the difference? And that's why Christianity is radically spiritual, radically internal, radically personal, and we could add radically ethical, lest anyone misunderstand the internal to mean private. It's meant for all peoples, all tribes, and all tongues, and all nations. 
So almost that all the required ritualistic, formal, external aspects of worship life are gone. What remains is spiritual, internal, personal, joyful dependence on all that God is for us in Jesus and the outworking of love and justice together. Now, the writer takes us down the same path a little farther, and he says that this radical spiritual internal personal way of relating to God is, in fact, the fulfillment of the promised new covenant. And that's what this text is about. Notice, secondly, replacing shadows is not enough. In verse 6, But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which is established upon better promises. Notice that word better here again. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It wouldn't work if God just simply took the shadows away. It wouldn't work if God even set Christ before us as the reality and left us to ourselves to know him and love him. And if that's all God did, our worship and our lives would not become radically spiritual and internal and personal, but rather we would construct a fast as possible, manageable, man-made external religion. That's what we'd do. We'd just build it all up again, man-made. No, if God was going to take away the shadows of external ritualistic willpower religion, then he's going to have to have something powerful and dramatic in us and not just outside of us. Because as sinners, that's just the way we are. And what God promised to do with the coming of Christ was the new covenant. See this in verse 6. Better promises build a better covenant relationship between us and God. And this relationship is what Christ obtains and takes care of us as mediator. I will see the better promises here in a minute. But uh, notice thirdly, the flaw of the old covenant. The flaw of the old covenant. Notice carefully where the fault lies in the first covenant. We said in verse 7, it says that the first covenant was not faultless. But then verse 8 explains this by saying, for finding fault with them, not it, but them, the fault was the first covenant was with them. Well, who was the them? And what was their fault? And what was this covenant anyway? All those questions are answered for us here in verse 8 and 9. I read verse 8. It says, I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I have made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. So here you see that the old covenant was made with people of God. Who were the people of God? Israel. It was made with them as they came out of Egypt, when I, which I think means in general time period a few months later at Mount Sinai as Moses received the law. And it was an arrangement of how God and man were to relate that they had failed to keep because they continued not in my covenant, he said. And so God looked away from them and they suffered judgment again and again. 
And the faultless of faultiness of the first covenant, the Mosaic law, was not that God gave a bad command, but that the people had bad hearts. There was a divine forgiveness and there was patience in the first covenant. There was a call for faith in the first covenant. There was promises of God's love in the first covenant. But by and large, these things did not get into the people's hearts. It was mainly external rather than internal. It was obedience by willpower rather than by reliance on the spirit. And it was ritualistic rather than personal. So what was wrong? What was the flaw? Well, there are two ways to answer that question from the human side and from the God side. From the human side, the problem was unbelief, hard-heartedness. From God's side, the problem was that God withheld the sovereign enablement of his spirit. You listen to Deuteronomy chapter 29 and verse 4. Moses is speaking as he looks back over 40 years of rebellion in the wilderness, and he said, Yet the Lord hath not given you a heart to perceive, and eyes to see, or ears to hear until this day. That was the ultimate reason why the Old Testament was inadequate. God had lessons that he meant to teach in the Old Testament, and they involved enduring generations of stubbornness and rebellion and hard-heartedness until the time of the new covenant would come. But now it comes with Jesus Christ, the mediator of the new covenant. Look at verse 10. For this is the covenant that I made with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. He says three things about this new covenant. First of all, the will of God is going to be written not just on stones of tablet or in a Bible paper, but in the mind and the heart of of, of the people. Second, the new covenant would establish a relationship of ownership of us by God. He says, I will be to them a God, and they will be to me a people. And then finally, the new covenant will be personal and intimate. When it's perfected, we won't have to exhort one another to know the Lord, because we know him intimately and personally. All shall know me from the least to the greatest. And so you can see the new covenant is exactly what we need if God is going to replace the shadows with reality. If God's will is that we be free from externalism and formalism and ritualism and traditionalism so that our faith and our corporate worship and our life will be radically spiritual and personal and internal, then we need more than the blowing away of the shadows of the Old Testament. We need for God to write his will in our hearts. We need for him to assert himself powerfully in our lives as our God. We need for him to, uh, to see to it that just that he is knowable. Not just that he was knowable, but that we know him. And so that brings us to the conclusion of this section. And there are three meaningful truths at work here. Number one is the shadow is replaced by reality. means the replacement of the Old Testament shadows with reality. The temple, the tabernacle, the sacrifices, the priesthood, the feast, the dietary laws, all shadows, all copies of reality in heaven, namely Jesus Christ and his work as our high priest, our sacrifice, our focus of worship. 
And Jesus fulfills and replaces the shadows of the Old Testament. Secondly, reality becomes real to us. I think the second meaning we see in this chapter is that God makes the reality of Christ real to us personally by the work of the new covenant when he writes the will of God on our hearts. And so the shadows are replaced with reality. Old Testament copies give way to the original Jesus Christ. And it means that God goes beyond that and moves powerfully into our hearts and minds to overcome our resistance to this reality. He writes the will of God, the truth of reality of Jesus on our hearts so that we are willing and eager to trust and follow him from the inside out freely, not under constraint of rules from the outside. And then the last truth is that God is merciful. Look down at verse 12. I, and for I will be merciful to their righteous, unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Now that's a quote from Jeremiah 31. It begins with the word for, which means because. So it's the ground or it's the basis for the promises of the new covenant. God said, I will write my will on their hearts. I will be your God. I will cause you to know me personally. In other words, the death of Jesus Christ for our sins is the foundation of the new covenant. It's the basis of all other promises. If Christ had not died for our sins, God would not have been uh, be our God and write the law in our hearts or cause us to know him personally. All that mercy was obtained by the blood of Jesus. And that's why Jesus called the cup, the Lord's Supper, the new covenant in my blood. Well, I'm thankful for this passage of Scripture especially verse 12 there, for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Christ bore our sins in his body when he died. He took our judgment. He canceled our guilt. And that means the sins are gone. In that sense, he forgets them. When Jerusalem fell in Roman, to the Romans in AD 70, the temple was burned. The sacrifices stopped and being offered in Judaism. And the Levitical, pre, Levitical priesthood came to an end. And God was saying that his power and providence, Christ was the goal of it all. Christ was the reality. The rest was just shadows. So we need to look at the great final, final reality of Christ and put our hope in him. Love him. Worship him. Christ is better. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the time.